April 1854, Brazil. A ship named La Bella leaves the port of Rio de Janeiro. It heads north towards the quilt of grey clouds gathering in the distance. An Englishman called Sir Roger Tichborne stands on the bow deck. He is the heir to the family fortune. 26 years old, tall, slender, with light brown hair, a pencil moustache and pale blue eyes. Behind him, Sugarloaf Mountain rises up over the city, vivid green. But Sir Roger keeps his eyes dead ahead. The temperature has dropped. The wind snaps in different directions and the ship's dog is whining. As the skies darken, Sir Roger's eyes remain fixed on the horizon towards home. He's desperate to return to England. All he can think about is his cousin, Catherine, the woman he loves. Having started an affair with her on the family estate in Hampshire, her parents rejected the idea of marriage out of hand. That's why, for the last year, he has been touring South America. But now, having given them time to get used to the idea, he hopes things will be different. As La Bella leaves Guanabara Bay behind, the first few drops of rain begin to fall and the wind begins to howl. Four days later, wreckage from La Bella is discovered floating off the coast. There's no sign of survivors. Two months pass. Back in England, Sir Roger's mother, Lady Titchborn, is informed of her son's death. Tragically for the English noblewoman, this is not the first time she's lost a child. The news is devastating. But in that overwhelming grief, one tiny shred of hope emerges. Rumors begin to circle that a passing ship may have rescued some survivors from La Bella, taking them safely onto Australia. She sends a flurry of letters and telegrams across the world and eagerly awaits news of her son. But the days turn to weeks, the weeks to months, the months to years. Then, in 1865, over a decade since his disappearance, Lady Titchborne suddenly comes to believe her son is still alive. She renews her efforts and posts advertisements in Australian newspapers, offering a substantial reward for any news relating to her boy. So when, just a few weeks later, she receives a letter claiming to be from her long-lost son, she's happy beyond words. It seems a mysterious Englishman, matching Sir Roger's description, suffering from trauma-induced memory loss, has been spotted, and many in Sydney now believe him to be her son, Sir Roger. Could it really be true? Has Sir Roger been found? Or is some malicious fraudster preying on the broken heart of a grieving mother? There will be doubters and supporters in abundance, and debate will rage for another decade to come. But one way or another, the truth will out. This is the story of the Titchborn Claimant. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. 
There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers. As we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. The Titsborne claimant will capture the imagination of the English-speaking world. From the House of Lords down to the Deptford docks, soon everyone will know the incredible tale of the prodigal son back from the dead. But will his return spark celebration or scandal? Many suspect foul play. Getting to the truth will require one of Britain's most brilliant investigators, Detective Inspector Jack Witcher, and the most infamous legal battle of the late 19th century. But the story begins with the hope and heartache of a loving mother. Lady Henriette Tichborn was born in France in the early 1800s. She married into the prominent Tichborn family in Hampshire, England, in 1827. Their estate extended to more than 2,000 acres, along with valuable properties in London and various counties. In 1829, Henriette gave birth to a son, Roger Charles Doughty Tichborn second in line to the Tichborne baronetcy. It was a life of privilege for him on paper, but the marriage of his parents was an unhappy one, and Roger grew up mostly in Paris with his mother. As a result, he spoke in accented English. In 1849, he joined the British Army and served for some years, mostly in Ireland. When on leave, he often stayed at the family estate, Tichborne Park, it is here that he developed a strong attraction to his cousin, Catherine. When it became evident that his aunt and uncle were not happy about such a match, Roger was distraught. It's hard to know for certain. It could have been shame or perhaps scandal. Maybe he simply needed space to think. But what is clear is that he needed to get away, as far away as possible. Resigning from the army, he bought his passage to South America. Lady Tichborne had already lost two daughters in their infancy, and she loved her son a great deal. So when news arrives in June of 1854 that Sir Roger has gone down with La Bella, she simply cannot accept it. As the years drag by, her hopes dwindle. She's all but given up 
when tragedy strikes again. In 1862, Sir James Tichborne, Roger's father, dies, leaving her all but alone. And without any word from her missing son, Lady Tichborne is left to wonder. But there is another area where answers may be found. In Victorian London, spiritualism is all the rage. Queen Victoria herself has attended seances. If Sir Roger will not reach out in this world, perhaps a medium can help. In 1863, Lady Tichborne sits in a shadowy parlour across from a clairvoyant, just a lit candle between them. We can only imagine the scene. An old woman in black lace and crushed velvet, her face veiled. Long shadows dancing over the walls, odd sounds throughout the house, the fortune teller's eyelids fluttering. What exactly is said in that room will never be known, but Lady Tichborne emerges from it convinced that her son is alive and well. This is when she starts advertising in the Times of London, seeking information on her son and his ill-fated ship. When this brings no leads, she turns her attention to Australian publications. In August 1865, she runs one more ad in the Argus, and, as if by some miracle, just a few weeks later, her prayers are answered. In the early 1860s, in New South Wales, Australia, the frontier town of Wagga Wagga has a population of just a few hundred. It's a small community of ramshackle wooden houses connected by unpaved mud roads, but it is growing rapidly. New settlers flood in en masse, Irish, Scots, English, generally those who've little other choice, convicts, indentured laborers, and the otherwise dispossessed. New shops and services are opening every week. And this is how a lawyer named William Gibbs comes to open his practice in Wagga Wagga. In late 1865, he's working on a routine job, recovering a debt to the sum of six pound owed by an English butcher named Thomas Castro. Not much is known about this butcher. He is a mild-mannered man, apparently with no friends or relations, who simply appeared in town one day and quietly set up shop. Apparently, he learned his trade in Wapping, London. By all accounts, he keeps to himself. No one knows for sure who this man is or where he came from. But now, as Gibbs goes over the case, his wife rushes over, clutching the newspaper. Excitedly, she points at the ad placed by the dowager Lady Tichborne regarding her long-lost son, Sir Roger. Does the butcher Castro not look a great deal like the missing baron? Studying the silver-gray photographic image, Gibbs cannot deny the strong likeness. He laughs. The butcher is shrouded in mystery. A reward, William, his wife reminds him of Lady Tichborne's words, a most liberal reward. Gibbs calls the large butcher into his office. At that moment, Gibbs' wife is leaving the room. Castro holds the door open for her and she gives her husband a pointed look, as if to say, would a baron not also hold a door open in such a gallant manner? a habit perhaps formed of an upper-class education. Gibbs offers his guest a seat, and Castro takes out his tobacco pipe. 
The lawyer can't help but notice the initials on the stem of the pipe. They read R-C-T. Now he can't help but recall the dowager's ad and the name of her missing son, Roger Charles Titchborn. Gibbs begins to question the butcher about his past. Castro talks vaguely of England and later of South America. When pressed for more, apparently Castro confesses he's had memory problems ever since the trauma of surviving a shipwreck. At this point, Gibbs is convinced this man, calling himself Thomas Castro, is in fact the missing aristocrat Sir Roger Titchborn, whether he knows it or not. It's not clear what happens next, whether with prompting his memories return or if Gibbs helps fill in the details, but it's not long before both men are convinced that Castro is in fact the rightful heir to the Titchborn title and estate. From that moment on, he becomes known by all as the claimant. By 1866, following announcements in various papers, the curious tale of the long-lost Sir Roger is the talk of Sydney society, and the claimant is practically a celebrity. He has now written a will at the request of Gibbs and a letter to his mother, Lady Titchborn. In the letter, the claimant talks in vague terms of his former life in England and asks for funds to come back home. It's not hard to imagine him adding that he misses his mother dearly and making clear his amnesia had stopped him from contacting her sooner. In fact, though much has come back to him, he still gets confused. In the will, he does make some basic errors, including getting his mother's name wrong. While waiting for Lady Titchborn's reply, he moves to Sydney. There, he borrows money from banks after making a legal declaration of his identity as Sir Roger Titchborn. In this statement, again, he makes some more basic errors, but these are perhaps understandable given his trauma. His statement does contain details about surviving the wreck of La Bella and how a ship called the Osprey had saved him taking survivors to Melbourne. He adds that on arriving in Australia, in his state of confusion, he took the name Thomas Castro, borrowed from a friend he had met while in Chile. Many in Sydney are satisfied with this explanation, though some are doubtful. But everyone is entertained by the story and enthralled by the claimant himself. Eventually, Lady Titchborn's reply arrives. She's overjoyed that her son is alive and well, as she always believed he would be. The news is doubly welcome, as it follows yet another tragedy in her life, the death of her youngest son, Alfred, Sir Roger's little brother. Lady Titchborn tells the claimant that funds are on their way. In the meantime, by happy coincidence, the beloved family servant, Andrew Bogle, happens to be in Sydney too. He has recently emigrated to seek his fortune. Lady Titchborn has notified Bogle of the miraculous news and says he will visit the claimant soon. Bogle is an elderly man with white whiskers, though still sprightly. Having served the Titchborns for a long time, he has known Sir Roger for many years. He's been following the story and is aware of Lady Titchborn's desperate search. 
When news comes that Sir Roger is actually alive, Bogle is overjoyed. Not just because the poor Lady Titchborne had lost every child she'd born, but because he is very fond of Sir Roger. As a boy, he preferred the company of the servants and even slept in a room next to Bogle. Now, Bogle rushes to the hotel to see Sir Roger and waits nervously in the lobby. But when the claimant emerges, his childhood friend is crestfallen. The man standing before him, while facially very similar to Sir Roger, is much changed. For starters, he's far larger than Sir Roger ever was, weighing almost 14 stone. I came here to see Sir Roger, says Bogle. You are not he. It's not a good start to the reunion. Yet apparently the two men chat for a while. It's been more than a decade since the sinking of La Bella, a fair few years more since Bogle has seen his friend's face. After all, people change. People gain weight. As for the details and facts the claimant cannot recall about his past, perhaps it's to be expected. The shock of a harrowing shipwreck, the days spent in an open boat at sea, the arduous journey to Australia. Whatever the claimant's explanation, it seems to convince Bogle that he is indeed Sir Roger. It's a belief Bogle will hold until the end of his life. For the claimant, convincing Bogle is only the first step towards reclaiming his inheritance. He must now return to England and renew former friendships. True to her word, Lady Titchborne sends funds to the claimant and, in September 1866, he and Andrew Bogle travel aboard the Rakaia First Class, reaching English shores on Christmas Day. The claimant makes his way through London, the largest city on earth and one of great contrasts. A cholera epidemic is raging, and the city is crisscrossed with smog-shrouded slums. But soon, the grime and poverty make way for the paved boulevards and cafes of Fitzrovia and Mayfair the splendid townhouses of the upper classes. It's easy to imagine the claimant's conflicting sense of the familiar and the foreign. He reaches Lady Titchborne's London address, only to be told she's away in Paris. Exhausted, disappointed, and at a loss what to do, he does what so many Londoners do. He seeks out a pub. He continues wandering along the river, eventually stopping on Wapping High Street at the Globe Public House. The claimant orders sherry and a cigar. After relaxing for a time, he starts up a conversation with local patrons, discussing the news and local concerns. He's much to catch up on. New Year's Eve comes and goes, and the claimant makes his way to France. On the 11th of January, 1867, the moment of truth arrives. The claimant meets Lady Titchborne in the Hotel de Lille in Paris. He approaches her, calling her mother. Lady Titchborne takes a moment to respond, the air thick with anxious anticipation. For nearly 13 years, she has harbored the memory of her beloved son, but the hulking Heavy-set 38-year-old man before her is much changed from the slim youth that left her for South America. 
The shock continues as they speak. His once French-twinged, upper-class inflection now replaced with the cockney twang of a common Londoner. But she's willing to suspend her doubts. The traumaries survived, the years spent toiling in the outback with labourers and goodness knows who. Having already lost her two daughters in infancy and her youngest son Alfred only a few months before, the possibility that her beloved Sir Roger has returned to her from the depths is overwhelming. After reminiscing a while longer, she's convinced. Throwing her arms around him, she accepts the claimant as her son. Sir Roger has returned. Signing a declaration that this man is indeed her long-lost boy, Lady Titsborne gives her permission for the Times to report the news. For the claimants, the meeting can hardly have gone better. However, not everyone is convinced. Father Chatillon, Sir Roger's childhood tutor, is willing to risk ruining Lady Titchborne's newfound happiness. Taking her to one side, he declares the claimant is nothing but an imposter. But the dowager will hear none of it. She birthed Sir Roger, raised him. She knows her son. As far as she is concerned, against all odds, they've finally been reunited. By now, the story that has gripped Australia has spread like wildfire through Victorian society and is the talk of London. The news hawkers are heard crying out the name Titchborne in every corner of the city. Everywhere, the debate seems to rage, from the pubs and coffee houses, in the fitting rooms of the Savile Row tailors, right down to the Deptford docks. Every man, woman and child seems to have an opinion on the incredible reappearance of Sir Roger Titchborne. On the one hand, the claimant has quickly gained support as former friends, acquaintances and fellow soldiers recognise him as Sir Roger. An MP becomes an official advocate for him, releasing a pamphlet illustrating 200 ways in which the claimant could only be Sir Roger. Even the Titchborne family doctor acknowledges him, citing the claimant's peculiar penis, which regressed into the body when flaccid, just as Sir Roger's did. And crucially, with every day that passes, Lady Titchborne becomes more and more certain of her son's identity. But there is a whole host of Titchborne family members who have yet to meet the claimants and make up their own minds. Relations who are far less happy to accept a change to the line of inheritance. Titchborne Park stands near Arlesford in Hampshire's rolling green country. The magnificent estate is swathed in chestnut trees and surrounded by a moat. This land has belonged to the Titchborns, a well-known Catholic family, since the 12th century. As the claimant walks the grounds of his ancestral home, he seems perfectly relaxed. He recognises old objects and belongings. He even notices that a painting in the house has been cleaned since he last saw it. Onlookers can't help but acknowledge the man's recollection and his grasp of family history, and it's true that the facial likeness is undeniable. But despite the claimant's best efforts, many of the Titchborne family reject him. They dismiss what he apparently remembers as details he has gleaned from servant Andrew Bogle on the long journey from Australia. Some even suggest he has been coached. 
Then there is his appearance. By now, the claimant weighs an astonishing 25 stone, and, enjoying the good life his £1,000 per year allowance affords him, is gaining weight all the time. And then there are the suspicious lapses in his so-called memory. The claimant does not recognise certain family members, and he has seemingly forgotten every word of his native French. As far as they're concerned, this uncouth cockney is a fraud pulling an outrageous con on Lady Titchborne, and just as importantly, threatening their own inheritance. In July 1867, the claimant faces his first formal test in a court of law. In a sense, it is welcomed by both parties. The Titchborns want to break his story, and the claimant is determined to prove his legitimacy. During a judicial examination at the Royal Courts of Justice, he testifies that he'd arrived in Melbourne 13 years prior, where he worked on a cattle farm under the name of Thomas Castro. With this information, the Titchborns engage a private detective and send him to Australia to investigate. In Wagga Wagga, inquiries revealed that the claimant, under the name Thomas Castro, had mentioned he had learned his butchery trade in London, specifically in the East London district of Wapping. The detective then makes his way deep into the outback. When he arrives at the cattle farm mentioned in court by the claimant, he can find no trace of any Thomas Castro whatsoever. But showing a photograph of the claimant to the widow running the farm, she nods. That's definitely the claimant, all right. But she knew him by another name. Arthur Orton. So, Orton, Castro, Roger Titchborne. Just who is the claimant? To get to the bottom of this, the Titchborne clan call on one of Britain's greatest ever criminal investigators. A man in his early 50s is walking through the streets of London. He has dark hair, blue eyes, and is of pale complexion, slightly scarred by smallpox. Passing policemen on their beats nod respectively. After all, every bobby on the force knows the name Jack Witcher. He's one of the founding members of Scotland Yard's detective branch. Now he may be a private investigator, but he's lost none of his edge. Many years ago, he was assigned to E Division Holborn. There he built his reputation on diverse streets, characterized as much by the sprawling slums of St Giles as the law courts and colleges. But Witcher isn't on a stroll through memory lane. He is on the case of the claimant. He has been appointed by a Titchborne relation, Lord Arundel, who is determined to out the suspected imposter. The wily detective has decades of experience dealing with tricksters and conmen, establishing fact, breaking down dodgy alibis, and finding reluctant witnesses. All of this is second nature to him. Lord Arundel has engaged the perfect man for the job. Working on the information unearthed in Australia, Witcher makes his way to Wapping. He passes the thronging wharves, pubs packed with sailors and working girls. The River Thames is crammed with every kind of vessel, goods and commodities from around the world being unloaded and taken up into the warehouses. Witcher combs the pubs and alleyways, making himself a home. He is working undercover, 
allow him to blend seamlessly into the fabric of working-class society. He knows the lingo, the rhythms of life here. It doesn't take him long to uncover intriguing information. He arrives at the Globe pub, the same pub the claimant had stopped in at on his arrival in December 1866. Widsher soon discovers that the claimant, just hours after returning to England, had turned up asking questions about a local family, the Orton family, in particular one Arthur Orton, a name known to many in Wapping. Witcher now strongly suspects that the claimant, Thomas Castro, and Arthur Orton are the same person. Witcher makes Wapping his second home. Over the next few months, using his street smarts, he convinces countless locals who have known Arthur Orton in the past to travel with him to Croydon, south of the city, to where the claimant has his lodgings. There, they wait until they can steal a glimpse of the enormous man. Upon seeing him, almost all confirm that the claimant is indeed the butcher Arthur Orton. Witcher starts to uncover the man's background. He finds his way to a pub called The Swan in Hampshire, which the claimant visited before travelling to Paris. There, he discovers that the landlord of the pub had been feeding the claimant information. It's all coming together. Witcher builds a mass of witness testimony. And it isn't just sale makers or pub regulars or whopping locals that recognise the claimant as Orton in Croydon. Witcher also manages to track down a woman named Mary Ann Loder, none other than Orton's ex-girlfriend. Loder had been deserted by him in the early 1850s when he left the country. If anyone is able to recognise the true identity of the mysterious claimant, it is her. At last, after countless months working the case, Witcher is satisfied. He is certain the man claiming to be Sir Roger Titchborne is in fact the whopping butcher, Arthur Orton. But now, his work must be tested in court. On March the 12th, 1868, disaster strikes for the claimant. Lady Titchborne dies, and he is left without his main champion and staunchest ally. But more importantly, he is also now without an income. He manages to anger the Titchborne family even further by taking the position of chief mourner at Lady Titchborne's funeral. In September, the claimant travels to South America to seek out potential witnesses who might confirm his identity. But the plan fails. He never gets further than Buenos Aires. Citing his health, he returns to England. At this, many of the claimant's backers quietly withdraw support, and the head of his legal team resigns. Public opinion on the case is split along class lines. The working class support him, perhaps siding with the underdog, while the wealthy and the titled reject him. But public opinion doesn't pay the bills. If there is any hope of getting his hands on the Titchborn inheritance, he can think of only one way. He needs to confirm his identity in court. But it is a high-stakes game. Failure would brand him a criminal imposter. It's May 1871. The Court of Common Pleas hears Titchborn versus Lushington. 
Ostensibly, the claimant wants Colonel Lushington, a tenant of Tichborne Park, ejected. In doing this, however, his real purpose is to establish his identity as Sir Roger, heir to the Tichborne name and fortune. The case soon becomes a battle of epic proportions. The claimant hires some heavyweight lawyers, but on the other side, acting on say-so of the Tichborne family, is Her Majesty's Solicitor General, the nation's top barrister. The claimant's lawyers open by anticipating their client's foggy memory and explaining away the impairment as caused by his experiences surviving the wreck of La Bella. Next, they quickly seek to discredit the work of Inspector Jack Witcher, hinting the whole thing to be a fabrication. Initially, things look good for the claimant. Several members of Sir Roger's regiment appear as witnesses, all of them speaking in favour of him. A cousin of Sir Roger declares his belief that the claimant is genuine, saying he did so after spending much time in his company. But soon, it's the claimant's turn to be cross-examined. He is cagey when pressed on the matter of his relationship with Arthur Orton. When asked outright, are you in fact Arthur Orton? He responds, I am not. When the subject of his education comes up, the claimant begins to flounder. He cannot say who the ancient Roman poet Virgil is. He cannot distinguish between Greek and Latin, despite his extensive schooling in the classics. Nor can he explain what chemistry is, or say why his observance of Gentile manners are now spotty at best. He is pressed on whether those close to the Tichborns such as Andrew Bogle or the pub landlord, have been supplying him with intimate details with which to better play the part of the long-lost baron. But he denies it. In January 1872, it is the turn of the defence to make its case against the claimant. They accuse him of being one of the greatest impostors in history. They have, thanks to the work of Inspector Witcher, over 200 witnesses standing by. In the end, only a handful are required. Lord Bellow, a noble of the realm and a classmate of Sir Roger, testifies that the missing baron had distinctive tattoos on his arm, which evidently the claimant does not. He testifies that Sir Roger's tattoo was of a heart, a cross and an anchor, with the initials RCT below them. When pressed as to how he was so sure, Lord Bella replies that he himself tattooed the initials onto his friend's skin. It is the nail in the coffin for the claimant. In early March, ten months after the start of the trial, the jury signal to the judge that they have heard enough. In a crushing blow, the judge rejects the claimant's case, and in doing so, rejects his claim on the Tichborne titles and estates. And it gets worse. The claimant is immediately arrested for perjury and committed to Newgate Prison. Hoping to use his celebrity and popular support, from his cell, the claimant quickly begins to appeal for money through the press. When he is bailed in April 1872, 
a crowd of supporters gathered to sing and cheer his freedom. Within a month, money is pouring in to bolster his defence. So, too, are the invitations to speak at towns around England. The claimant does not turn these down. He travels the country, telling his story and, of course, seeking donations so that he can clear his name. His plight becomes almost a political movement, reaching far beyond the unique circumstances of his claim. Perhaps tapping into a common feeling of upheaval, railing against the unfairness of class-bound Victorian society. The claimant, caught between the grind of the working class and graces of the upper class, comes to represent something beyond himself, and he is hailed by many as a hero. To the social elite, he remains reviled as a villain. The criminal trial begins a year later, in April 1873, and will be one of the longest in history. The case is a sensation, with the observer saying, no subject whatsoever occupied so large a space in the human mind. The prosecution calls over 200 witnesses from all over the world to discredit the claimant. This includes, in July, Miss Mary Ann Loder, who positively identified the claimant as Orton, her former sweetheart, and the man who left her in the lurch. The sheer weight of testimony against his claim is staggering. His story of surviving shipwreck is disproved as a mere fabrication. The Osprey, supposedly Sir Roger's saving grace, was a real ship, but its trajectory in no way corresponded to his version of events nor could he name its captain or crew. The jury is told that the claimant's ignorance of things Sir Roger would know is gross and astonishing. The claimant's lawyer suggests the case against his client is nothing more than a conspiracy. First, he says it's concocted by the Catholic Church. After all, the Titchborns were a prominent Catholic family. Then he goes further, even suggesting government involvement. The jury comes to its decision on the 28th of February, 1874. Despite the court cases on the matter of the claimant's identity running into years in length, the jury needs only 30 minutes to return their verdict. They reject, once and for all, the claimant's assertion that he is Sir Roger Tichborne, and they are convinced that the claimant is in fact the bankrupt butcher Arthur Orton. The first court case was his move. The second court case is the response from the state. And now the consequences are severe. The claimant is swiftly convicted of perjury and sentenced to 14 years. His own lawyer is disbarred. The press describes the judges summing up against the claimant as a Niagara of condemnation. The judge, for his part, can't quite believe the press attention, nor the public obsession with the case, stating, Never was there a trial in England, I believe, since that memorable trial of Charles I, which has excited more the attention of Englishmen and the world than this. And the circus will continue. In the weeks and months after the conviction, Tichborne memorabilia sparks a collection craze with endless metals, pendants, 
and engravings made to commemorate the sensational trial and its divisive central figure. Some collectibles are made in favor of the claimant, others ridiculing him. One medal depicts a mop-haired boy on one side, the son of Alfred Titchborn, Sir Roger's late young brother, surrounded by the words, the alleged heir. The other side of the medal shows the claimant. That one cheap little trinket neatly summed up the mood. Whatever the law said, it is clear that public opinion is still split and that gossip and conjecture on either side of the argument is largely of more interest to Victorian society than the underlying facts. The claimant, or Arthur Orton as he is now known, serves a decade in prison and is released in October 1884 at the age of 50 years old. Throughout his incarceration, he has maintained that he is Sir Roger. Many hope he will step into the figurehead role of a growing popular political movement, representing the plight of the working classes. Critics even fear Tichbornism threatens to morph into a social revolution. But in true claimant style, instead he opts to tour the country for money. Playing to crowds in circuses and music halls, he retells his sensational story over and over again. In 1886, the claimant moves to New York, hoping for a new audience with a fresh appetite for his story. But the move fails. A year later, he returns to London and marries a music hall singer. In 1895, a decade after his release from prison, the claimant accepts a fee of a few hundred pounds from the People newspaper. In an exclusive interview, he finally gives in and admits that yes, he is indeed Arthur Orton and a fraud. The claimant eventually dies destitute on April Fool's Day, 1898. He was 64 years old. He's buried in Paddington in a pauper's grave, but his funeral is attended by thousands. Though he never got his hands on the inheritance, a card bearing the name Sir Roger Tichborn is placed on his coffin. Placed by whom, we do not know whether an act of generosity or one final move of defiance against the upper classes is left open to interpretation. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. It's September the 6th, 1988, in the Masai Mara Game Reserve, Kenya. 28-year-old photographer Julie Ward is driving out of the park, having struck camp earlier in the day. But she never makes it out of the park. After being reported missing, her father flies out to lead the search effort, but all he finds is heartbreak and distress. What follows is an international murder investigation that reaches the highest level of the Kenyan government. Multiple police forces, including two teams of detectives from Scotland Yard, take part. For over 30 years, the driving force and only continuity in the search for justice is Julia's devastated father, John Ward. Spending millions of pounds of his own money and relentlessly following every lead, he dedicates his life to catching Julie's killer. Mm -hmm. 
Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boirot for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant Roger Morris. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Written by Nicholas Obregon. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Jacob Booth. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Jacob Booth. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.